0: Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a country music artist and songwriter. It's Brandon Maddox. How are you doing today, Brandon? Doing great, Alex. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to have you on the show to talk about your Rise to the Challenge. First thing we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the being. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up.
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee area, and uh, kind of the suburbs and, you know, in the countryside because there was a lot of country around us. Uh, but uh, I grew up just kind of, you know, middle class family type thing and, uh, you know, got my education, schooling, all that. But when I was about 11 years old, I I saw when I was doing some work for my grandfather. I saw this beat up guitar in a woodshed that they had under their uh, screened in porch. And I went and I looked and saw that guitar and I said, now, can I can I string this up and can I teach myself to play it? And they said, you can have at it. So I took the guitar and I put new strings on it. And about that time, my parents were looking for moving to a new house. And so I was having to leave a lot of the friends that I had in my neighborhood there in Chattanooga and uh, knew that things were changing. So um, I restrung it and I started teaching myself to play guitar just from old Beatles books that my dad had. And while they were looking at, uh, you know, Having their house uh, with the right brick and the right whatever you know architectural stuff, I was able to just stay at my grandparent grandparents house for the most part and teach myself uh, how to play guitar. So that's when when I started. And as I was going through the Beatles books, uh, I was noticing Lennon and McCartney were on all the songs, and I didn't even know who Lennon and McCartney were. I don't believe so. I asked my dad, "Who? What's this Lennon and McCartney?" And he said, "He said, well, those are." The- guys in the Beatles group. And I was like, okay, so they were and they showed me the old Ed Sullivan show, you know where they were on that 1964. And from there I just realized they wrote the majority of the Beatles songs. So I wanted to be just like that, write songs and that's where my inspiration came from. And I kind of just did it as a hobby for years until uh, years later, uh, I felt like, hey, I want to do this for a living. And um, it was just through learning what I did want to do in life and what I didn't want to do in life that led me to
0: going to Nashville and trying my hand at music. Before you found the guitar, did you even have a passion with music or it wasn't until you had the opportunity to string back that guitar and then that's where it led to your love for music now?
1: I always had a love for music. Even when I was a little kid, I would just get quiet at restaurants music was playing in the background if there was a song that my parents were playing on their uh, cassette tape or their record or whatever I was I was listening to it and I was listening to the the way the music was and I was wondering how what made it be like that what was happening behind the scenes and I just wondered about that I just really you know questioned how that all came to be and I started noticing patterns within the music and within the songs and with that um after I started teaching myself to play guitar, I came up with my own little language, I guess you could say, for how those chords and that music fit together.
0: You talked about there was a change of in your life with moving, not being with your friends anymore. Was music that sense of comfort that you had that no matter where you are, you could always have music in your life and you feel at home?
1: Yeah. You know, I probably didn't even realize it at the time that that was what was going on there, but I definitely think that that looking back on it was a key component. I feel like I, you know, I played outside mostly with my friends leading up to age 10, 11, although I always loved music. I never really thought that I could do it, or I didn't know that I could, that I loved it that much until I actually started to to teach myself how to play. And then I discovered even more the love of music that I'd already always had. And I thought everybody just sort of listened to music the way I did up to that point in time. Never questioned that I was different from anybody else. I just thought
0: everybody kind of heard music the same way and and loved music the same way I did. Did you have any motivations or someone you inspired were inspired by? Yeah, a lot of inspirations over the years. Um, At that time, it
1: was primarily just, you know, oldies music my dad listened to, uh, old rock and roll, and then some Johnny Cash, of course, he turned it on country as well, but mainly the outlaw type country is what I grew up with, and as uh, the years went by, um, I'd bring my guitar to school, and I would play it at school, and, you know, I encountered both people who encouraged me and people who, uh, you know, were bullies and said, you know, you need to give it up and, and not do that anymore. You're making a bunch of ruckus. And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't listen to the haters even back then. I just thought, well, they're jealous. That's what, that's what's going on. So I never listened to them. I never really cared. And a matter of fact, it gave me a little sick sense of pleasure to annoy them that much that they told me to put it up. So, I just kept going. But uh, in answer to the question, years later, a big inspiration for me was at a turning point, because uh, when I was growing up, my parents were always like, well, if you're going to be an artist, then you're probably going to wind up taking a lot of drugs and being in the, you know, what they knew to be the music industry of the 1960s and 70s. And I uh, thought I I was kind of afraid that that was the reality of it, that that's what you had to do if you got into music that you were just going to wind up a druggie down in LA on in hell's kitchen or something. And I, um, I steered away from that because I was afraid of that. Like I steered away from being my own artist. So years later I was in college trying to do what the safe thing, trying to do the thing that uh, my parents wanted me to do and that society said you should do. And I went, to college and did that. And during that time, I met a girl that was living next door to the apartment. There was, you could hear music through the wall there. And during that time, she heard me playing my guitar and started encouraging me to pursue that more and told me about a phenomenon called songwriting that I didn't know about. I'd never heard that you could write songs for other people to pick up and sing. So at that point, she introduced me to a couple of people that were songwriters. And, and then I was also, um, I'd also got introduced to live at the bluebird cafe that was being broadcast on TNN. And I would hear these stories behind the songs, the big hit men of music row that would write these big songs for the country stars. And that's when it started to come together for me in my mind that this is what I want to do. And, um, and I moved to Nashville and I tried writing songs for a few years, had some great things happen with my songwriting, got uh, noticed by publishers, got some agreements and contracts with publishing companies. But about three years in, I, um, someone at one of the large corporations, ASCAP is the name of the corporation, uh, I was meeting with them and they are basically the people who Uh, allow you to make royalties off your songs. They distribute, they make sure your royalties get to the right people so you get paid. So there's that, there's those, those entities that are up there. Well, one of them said, I would just, I don't even know where to begin now. He said, the songwriter is becoming the way of the dinosaur. Basically, people are having to jump on the bus and write with the artist, or they're having to, you know, get really good at schmoozing and, or you, you got to have money. So you got to have either of those three options. And I was like, well, I'm not good at schmoozing and I'm not good at having money. And I'm, uh, so that only leaves the last option as, as far as being an artist, being my own artist. And so, uh, there was one night where I was contemplating all this heavily because I was still afraid that somehow the drugs would find me if I became an artist. So one, one night I'm at a, an event called Tin Pan South. It's a big festival in Nashville. And so all these songwriters converge and big hit makers converge. And there was a guy named Jim Peter, who was from the band Survivor, And uh, so he, he actually did the voice for Real Men of Genius for the Budweiser commercials in the 90s. He also had the song, um, you know, The Eye of the Tiger and some of the other ones that Survivor recorded. And Jim was 70-something years old when I saw him, and he had on leather jacket. He had on, uh, you know, boots, and he was just really decked out image-wise. He really looked like something. And I asked myself, now, what is this – why is this guy still playing the game? He wrote wrote huge songs for other people. He wrote huge songs for himself. He's got all the money anybody could want from all the Budweiser commercial royalties – So why does this guy still play the game? And after I asked myself that, I thought, well, he must know something. I don't know. Then why is he doing this? And I came to the conclusion that I was going to go for it. I was going to become an artist at that point because I could always be a songwriter later in time. And if I was old and and Jim's age or whatever, uh, I could always just write for other people. My looks did not have to be there. But they have to be there right now going for the artist thing. So I decided that I was going to change my hair and do all the things I didn't want to do uh, before and become a become an artist. And um, I got jobs pretty quickly, played for Tootsies and all that.
0: So, um, yes, been inspired by a number of people. Did your parents support your decision to go fully with music as their goal for you was to go to college, get that degree education, but you've had a passion in music and you kind of started making that transition over to there. Yeah, absolutely not. (laughs) And answer that question. No, they, uh, they did not. Um, when I was, uh, in
1: college, as soon as I was about to graduate, uh, college, my, I told my dad, I'm going to move to Nashville and I'm going to try this music thing. And he said, uh, well, it's your decision, but you know you could be making fifty thousand dollars starting out a year with your business profession, and uh, and I was like, well, that sounds awful enticing and awful good, but guess what? I'm still going to move to Nashville. So I packed up everything in my car and and was ready for a life of poverty. I was ready for a life of of you know just scrapping it on the streets and being doing whatever it took to to make ends meet just for the love of the music. I'd heard a quote from Waylon Jennings about, don't do this for the money. Don't do this for the fame. Do it for the music. And if you love music that much. And I knew in my heart that I did. That it was all about the music to me and not about the, the fame or the money or the glitz and the glamour. So my, uh, my dad was shocked that I chose to move to Nashville and do it. And every few weeks when we were talking, he would say, now you ready to move back home? I mean, are you ready? got this out of your system you know this crazy dream that you're dreaming and I'd be like no I'm still going to be up here I'm going to give it about five to ten years see what happens then and so he said okay well you know I may not be around and all this stuff so it never was an encouraging scenario with with what my parents did and it did make me a little bit jealous when I'd see other singer songwriters come into town that were teenagers and they would come to Nashville and they had full parental support. a matter of fact, the parents really pushed them to do music. I mean, they were wanting their, their sons or their daughters to almost live vicariously through. And I was having to fight all the time, the notion off that, uh, you know, that, that my parents would be saying to me, well, you know, you just need to give it up, just give up the dream. And so, um, even after I had a song in a movie, even if I, after I had a publishing deal, even after many good things happened, it was always them asking me when was I moving home, when was I doing the safe thing in life and just getting a real job you know so that was how that went
0: making those sacrifices, what did it teach you about yourself that you didn't know about you had? Yeah, it taught
1: me a lot because I didn't know if I could take it i didn't know if I could uh even survived Nashville because I always heard it was a really tough town. You know, it was really hard. Everybody was telling me. And then I got up there and and not to brag or be um, arrogant sounding, but I knew I could compete. I knew that everything, the songs that were going on around me in these circles, that my songs were as good, if not better than those songs that were being written. And even the hit songs that I heard, I knew that those songs that I had some that were equivalent, you know, and I was trying to be very um objective with my, uh, you know, evaluation of myself. And, and I looked at my songs as products and not tied too heavily to my soul. You know, you have to sort of st- stand back after you write it and, and, and uh realize that you're also marketing a product at the same time. And I, uh, and so I, I tended to look at it like that and tried my best to, to do that. And I just uh, I just hung in there and kept doing it. I got a lot of uh, good things that happened. And then I had some people that didn't like my success, how quickly good things started happening uh, as soon as they did, as soon as I moved there and they set out to destroy me. You know, I had people that did that and uh, and some to some extent they were kind of effective. But I had to keep going and I didn't stop. So I just knew that no matter what happened, whether I had the haters that were out to destroy me or sought to do that, that I was going to stick in there and rise again.
0: I think a lot of people can relate or they can utilize what you just said, because I think people are worried about the negatives that come from trying something like they're going to fail. They're not going to make it. It's not going to have a good outcome. But I think nowadays it's the perfect timing to go for it and learn from this opportunity and if it doesn't succeed keep trying if it's still not working then you make those decisions at that time but I think like you said you got you have the passion for it and you knew in your mind that you weren't going to fall back and just get a regular job you wanted to pursue music and you wanted to keep on going because that's what you were driven to do exactly
1: yeah and I, I think that everyone that wants to do music should also read up on the business and read up on the um the the art as well. The, I read a book called The Craft and Business of Songwriting years ago by Art Brehini, I think it is, or John, John Brehini. And and I read that book and it gave me a lot of uh, a lot of insight into Nashville and how things worked, at least historically how they worked. And so it gave me a uh, it gave me somewhere to begin to say, this is what they're looking for up there. This is what I can expect from the industry itself. And, uh, and so I didn't go up there blind, I would read, read about this stuff. I didn't want to go up there and just be like, well, where do I start? You know, so I would encourage also people not to not to just go to Nashville yet. Know something about it. Ask questions from people that have been in the business first. And then when they get there, they won't be totally in the dark about how the
0: business is conducted up there. When was the moment that was the pure breakout moment for your career? Well, you know, there's, there's
1: never really been that defining breakout moment. I've had a lot of small victories along the way. A lot of times that I've gone up and gone back down and gone back up and, you know, and really... there's not a lot of people that have those defining moments that are doing it like I do it. So I do it because I come from non-supportive parental people. You know, my parents are not uh, involved in this process at all, but many, many artists have that backing. They have money that backs them and they have that one moment where the money marries the promotion, marries the art and everything catapults from that moment gets better and better and better for them um people buy their record deals these days there's just not the same uh industry that there used to be things have changed it's been an ever moving target but um i I was a few years back and probably about 11 12 years ago now i was in nashville and it'd been two two or three years i'd been in nashville and my dad said uh, i just found out that Reba McIntyre's keyboard player went to my high school and I'm going to try to reach out to him on Facebook and see, you know, what he thinks about your music, what he thinks about your songs. And I think that part of him wanted this guy to say, he, he ain't got a shot in hell. Just, you know, tell him to give it up and come back home. Yeah. And then the other part was, well, if, if he does it, then he does it. Uh, but uh, so I urged him to contact this old contact of his and he did. and that guy asked me to send him a few of my original songs and I did. And after he heard the songs, he said, would you like to write a song together? And I said, absolutely. So we started writing songs together. And there was a, um, there was a guy that I was trying to do some recording with prior to this, do my first EP or album with me as the artist. And that, uh, that guy changed one of the lines Uh, one of the musical parts to one of my original songs. What, when I wasn't there to supervise, he was kind of working on it by himself and I would show him what I wanted. Then he would do it. And he said, I couldn't get your part down perfectly. I had to change it around. And I said, that isn't going to work. And he said, it better work or else basically. And I said, it's not going to work. I wrote it this way. And I don't like your way. If it were cooler than my way, I would say, okay, sure. But it's not cooler than my way. So, uh, I'm not going to go along with it. So he got really upset and angry and, uh, said, I'm not going to be part of your, your album. And that very night I was writing with uh, Reba's rebus guy. His name is Doug Sizemore. I was writing with Doug and I said, man, I'm really bummed because this guy who was recording my album, my uh, new album that I'd never had, like I said before, um, he said he's not going to do it anymore. And he said, why didn't you ask me to record your album for you or, you know, record it instead of him. And I said, well, because I didn't have any money to pay you and we were doing this all grassroots. And I felt like I didn't have a chance to, to ask you. I felt a little bit intimidated by that, which I did. And he said, as long as we get the musicians paid, I won't take a cut for myself and if, if we can get those guys taken care of what's not out of pocket for me, then I'll be happy to be your producer on this album. And I said, OK, so we've already got some uh, we'd already had a crowdfunding thing that was trying to raise some money for this EP. And we raised about uh, two thirds of the money that was going to go towards the EP from fans. And uh, then the other part we didn't raise. So we had to do everything on a shoestring budget. With the very best songs that I had written at that point, married with the you know shoestring budget of what we could do, and so he was able to get some get some people for cheap in the studio, get some people for a reduced rate on the on the album. And after that point in time, he uh, I thought that was it; he was done. But one one summer, the very next year, from that point in time, he called me up and he said. I really enjoyed doing that album, you know, and producing your album. If you ever want me again, I would love to be part of all future projects. And I said, I would love for you to be part of all future projects. Once once we can find the songs and maybe we can sit down and collaborate on something. It wasn't two or three months later, this would probably be the first defining moment as you asked the question. And he called me up and he said that uh, there was a, a position, a role for, Uh, being the monster truck artist of the year because there was a theme song that was already determined to be the theme song for the monster truck shows uh, the very next summer or actually not even summer, very next uh, like four or five months from that point in time. And he said, if you would like, you can come over and lay down your vocal on the track and see if you get the, if you pass the audition, basically, basically. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. So I listened to the song and, and got the words down and everything went there and recorded it. And it ended up that I got the job out of other bands that were auditioning too. And uh, that's when we had to put together very quickly a new album that had that song on it and other songs that were cohesive with that song. So we dug into my songwriting catalog. At that point, I probably had had about a thousand songs I'd written and we found six others that fit with that song. And, uh, but we had, we had to get ready for, um, going out on the road in the middle of wintertime with the monster truck, uh, tour. And we were in Sioux city, Iowa, Madison, Wisconsin, and all these big arena shows. And that was, that was a a really cool thing from the standpoint of exposure A really good thing from the standpoint of, you know, to say I I did it and everything. But when that ended, when all that run ended, it was back to the bar scene once again. So I went I had a little blip of of things going really well and then back to the bar scene. And then there was, uh, you know, songs I've had on radio. And then, you know, that was back to playing, you know, the same same songs, you know. So there was. um it was just an up and down, spin an up and down roller coaster of a ride, but it's been fun. And, uh, you know, I would say that, you know, if, if there's someone that wanted to invest in my career, I would be a good horse to bet on in the race. You know, uh, there's a lot of artists that are trying to make it. I think I'm a pretty good horse to bet on as, as, uh, as somebody that, uh,
0: could yield them a good ROI. So anyway, that's my, uh that's how it's been for me. Do you think having those ups and downs compared to maybe another artist that has just an easy straight up path, do you think you have the advantage because you have to grow, adapt to any situation? You're able to take the time and see what's my next opportunity or what do I want to work for? Because a lot of artists, they just keep on going and they're doing the same thing over and over and over. And they don't get those moments But sometimes their career just stops out of nowhere, but they don't have that adaptability to get back up going. They kind of just are like, okay, I think I'm done for a while.
1: Yes, absolutely. It's created in me an entrepreneurship, a uh, ability to bounce back that maybe some other artists don't have because they just only knew one thing. They only knew that they had their parents' money. They went to a record label. They bought their record deal. They had a straight up trajectory. Then the record... Uh, label dropped them because they weren't selling or they ran out of money or whatever. They, they totally took their money and did made them as big as they could make them with that money. And then they said, we're not going to shell out any more of our money because we're not seeing enough sales to, to make it happen. So I think that in answer to your question, I believe that, yes, it's helped me also be captain of my own ship and build a team and a tribe of people that I can work with and delegate these things to. And I know how to do it, what I expect. And I'm not naive to how the music industry works versus someone who just has everything handed to them. And so they're a little naive about when someone says, well, I can do this for you. And they go ahead and pay that person. that person scams them or whatever else uh, involves their not, uh, not knowing the ropes enough to easily be duped.
0: Has there, you've talked about where you were with Monster Truck and kind of that kind of sporting scene. Did you ever change the path where you got into like the TV, movie, kind of doing songs for those kind of industries?
1: Yes, I had a couple of songs that made it to a couple of movies, but it was all by random chance. So I had uh, my first song made it to a movie in 2012 that was called Unconditional. And I'd written it with the band who made that sort of their, their theme song, uh, their their band uh, niche song to try to get their name out there. And that song went into a music library. And I don't know what the odds were of this, but my song got chosen for this for this movie. But the the most amazing thing about that is, is that that first song that I had in the movie was chosen by a former teacher that I'd had in school who didn't know that his student had written a song that he ended up choosing years later for his movie. Wow. So that's, that's pretty crazy. Uh, you know, I came and came and put a, put a price on the crazy of that, but it, I did had that one. And then a few years later by random chance, uh, one of my other original songs made it to a movie and I tried to connect with all of these people to try to leverage into that, um, and you know the first first guy I have a pretty good end with still, um, but uh, the second person, I wasn't able to really get them to take a look at my other songs in my catalog. There's an interesting dance that goes on with the movie industry and songs and and that whole thing. It's not the same as trying to be a country music performer. It's like you've got to kiss a lot of butt for the for the songs to make it movies you got to court these people take them out for dinner take you know schmooze them and wine them and dine them and then you know then they'll let you send them a song but it's it is there's a lot of leg work and a lot of prep work with that kind of thing and i i don't live in la and i wouldn't make a special trip to go to la just to wine and dine someone who may not even choose my song catalog it'd be
0: a lot of expense and a lot of trouble for you know, kiss and butt, you know. It sounds like the music industry is a lot of 50-50 flip of the coin. It's either going to be approved, accepted, you get the song on an album or something or in a movie, or it doesn't happen. How does that hurt you mentally when things just aren't going your way, but then out of nowhere, things go your way? It's always flip flopped
1: Yeah, it's validation for me. You know, I believe in my stuff, and I believe in my music so much that it doesn't matter if the industry accepts me or rejects me at this point. Um, I've got such a confidence in what I do that there's nothing that the industry can do to tell me otherwise. Matter of fact, I've had uh industry people tell me that this one of my songs sucks or whatever, you know, was, that's just a terrible song, you know. Um, you need to write something more like this, and then they give me the song that they're talking about, and I think that's a total joke and total crap. And there wouldn't be any way I would want to write that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's just vanilla, uh, same subject that's always been, you know, done a million times. So I, I don't have any. Um, I just don't. I take with what they say with a grain of salt, and I realize that a lot of times their objective, their strategy, is to break an artist down so that they can then have control over that artist so they don't do it because they really thought your song sucked they did it because they want to have the upper hand and so they break you down so that they can then make you do what they want you to do Mm -hmm. so i've learned that along the way and a lot of artists would just you know not seen that coming they would have said oh man they said my song sucks i'm just i'm done i'm i'm not a good songwriter now but i have Years of experience uh, where the I've had my ups and downs and people saying that this is really good. And if the people that I take the songs to, the fans, the public, and I'm playing them live in front of people and I see the reactions and I get that vibe from the direct-to-fan marketing that I'm doing, um, I realize that these are great songs. The industry is following whatever is selling. So they're not leaders, they're followers. They're following what's selling to the fans anyway. So I'm out there on the front lines seeing what's going to sell to the fans long before they catch up and know what's going to sell to the fans. So I don't really put much stock in what the industry says or what the Nashville machine tells
0: me that, they, uh, that is good or bad. Looking back at your journey, is there anything you would change or a different path you would have taken to get to a certain spot in your career?
1: Yes, I would have not gone to college. (laughs) I would have gone straight to Nashville, out of high school, and uh, because the industry changed drastically while I was in college, and I would have just, if I had known what I know today, of course, I would have... um, uh, been an artist from the get-go. I would have started trying to hone my singing skills and my uh, guitar playing to where I was really a critic of what I did to try to be the best that I can be as an artist and not just a songwriter. And I would have gone after that first and just written for both me and I think I also would have written for others too just because it really makes you better when you think in terms of, I'm going to write for myself, but I'm also going to write in the style of someone else. And mm-hmm. it gives you a new way to practice your craft. So, yeah, there, there's there's things that I would have done different. Definitely looking back, that might have changed the course of where I am
0: today. So what does the future look like for you professionally and personally? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. I've been, you know, since COVID kind of shut things down in 2020. Uh, you know, things were all on hold, on hold, and there was, um, just a sense of, you know, I don't know, just a lot of the ground that I had gained was kind of ripped out from under, under me that year, last year. And then, you know, you always hope, one always hopes that they're on the forefront of being out there first before the competition catches up. But unfortunately, in the industry that that i'm in there's a whole lot of booking people that like to swoop in and take all the venues a- and hoard these venues and then have the, their roster of artists that spend money both the on the front end and the back end it's so greedy they, they spend it on the front end and the back end with these booking agencies and um and then these booking agencies you know if you don't play their game they will not book you so you're you, you know i'm called down to a to a smaller group of venues that I can perform at because of that. But I guess what I'm looking to do is find that one really good business person in the music industry, someone who's a go-getter, someone who's a good salesperson, but also believes in what we're doing so much that they're able to sell me as the artist. Um, We need a team of people that are as, as good or better than the industry veterans that come out of Nashville, and what uh, the industry veterans that are in Nashville, oftentimes they're not really all that all that good because they're a cog in a big giant wheel in Nashville, and they each do their little small part of it. I need people who are going to be on fire, are going to be you know knowing how to do it with with grassroots, with being one of five people on our team that have a lot of work to do have a lot of things that they're working on and are doing it so efficiently and effectively. So right now, I, I don't think the ball is much in, in my court. I've got 1400 to 1500 songs and I've got songs that are, um, you know, have been award-winning songs. You'll see behind me, there's a a glass award. It's it's kind of, um, let me kind of turn it this way. It's kind of, did
0: on top of those books?
1: Yeah, it's kind of kind of here. I'll pull it down here so you can see it. So this is a, it's kind of got a glow or a reflective thing in it. So let's see this way. So this thing is the a Josie Award that I won. It's, a, it's the largest independent award show that's, that's in the world. And I won that in 2019 for a song I'd written. So uh, I got, if you have one great song, they say, got one great song, then you're able to bust through and have other songs and a chance to have other success after that. So I just need a promotional team and a uh, team that knows um, the the ropes of the industry to be able to promote what I've got, promote the product that I've got. And I think that's just where we are at at this moment in time. What's going to help or hurt is going to be who I've got on my team helping me or hurting me.
0: The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge?
1: Well, the mindset is huge. You got to go in with the mindset that come what may, you're going to stick it out and be the last man standing. Years ago, that very advice was given to me, which helped me um, know that that's the way I wanted to be and approach it. Um, a guy named Keith Harling, who was, uh, he had a hit in 1998, but he was he was kind of nudged out by Kenny Chesney, who was on the rise at the same time. He was in a music store that I was working in 2006, and I was just about to make the move to Nashville. And I asked him that question. Is there any advice, Keith, that you could give me as far as when I moved to Nashville, what I should do to make sure that, that I'm doing the best, that I'm, I'm going to see success here. And Keith said, man, I don't know. I just say, be the last man standing. Don't let them get you down. Don't let them, you know, don't let them shoot you out of town. You've got to be doing that. Um, you've got to be so driven. So into the music that you're not just looking for, you know, the famous fleeting. if you're going for for dressing up in a fancy costume and uh you know going to an award show and that's your motivation is just going to an award show you might as well give up now because what you need to be doing is thinking about the art and the craft about the music and giving yourself completely to that and um if you've got a backer that is in your family utilize that backer and get that money coming in from your family member, because that's most of the time where people get their financing is from their parents. So use that. If you really think you got what it takes and you've got the skills to succeed and battle it out and not give up even in the face of adversity.
0: Well, Brandon, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. We're excited to see what the future has for you. Thank you very much, Alex. I appreciate so much you having me on here. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.